welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Readings Programming Manager Chris Gordon speaks with author Hugh Mackay about two of his new books, The Question of Love, a novel that's both a sympathetic examination of a marriage and an exposition of the complexities and contradictions of human love, and The Inner Self, a book that explores the way that we hide the truth from ourselves and the psychological freedom that we enjoy when we finally face that question, who am I, really? Again, a note, as this was recorded live over the internet, there has been some effect on the sound quality of the episode. But now, here's Chris. It is my pleasure to introduce you to author and social researcher, Hugh Mackay. Welcome. Thank you very much, Chris. For over 60 years, Hugh has been the voice of reason. He holds an extraordinary amount of honorary appointments. He was appointed Officer of the Order of Australia in 2015, and he is the patron of the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre. He's written many books, many reports, many articles about who we are, and more importantly, why we are. Uh, he's asking in these new books that he's written for us to look inside ourselves, to find our uniqueness, to own it, and by doing so, to find some common ground with friends, family, neighbours, and your colleagues, and more importantly, find some common humanity. Uh, your two books, which came out on exactly the same day, The Inner Self, can everybody see that? That's the non-fiction. And The Question of Love, the fiction. Hugh, welcome to Zoom. Welcome to Readings. What a treat to have you here tonight. I'm beside myself. Great pleasure, Chris. Thank you. So today I want to take a little journey where we look at these two works but we begin, I think, and this is so important, I'd love to know a little bit more about you, Hugh. And I know that you're so generous and you give so much in public discussion. But let's just start with what's a typical day for Hugh Mackay? Uh, first of all, I probably should say it's Mackay. Oh, <laughs> what have I been saying? Oh, Mackay, that's terrible. Uh, rhymes with make hay. <laughs> <laughs> A uh, typical day for me, it depends whether I'm writing, the typical day for me at the moment is fairly chaotic because there's a lot of activity going on with um, media and events to promote these two new books, uh, which rather unusually <laughs> have appeared on the same day. This hasn't happened before to me. Uh, so it's a very busy period doing all of that. But when I'm writing, uh, it's it's a bit tedious to describe because I'm a very disciplined writer. I, I go to my desk at nine o'clock and I start writing or researching, but something to do with whatever I'm working on. Uh, I have a morning tea break. I have a lunch break. Uh, in the afternoon, I um, have a brief nap, perhaps, or read something else, go for a bit of a walk, come back, look over what I've written, and around about 6 or 6.30, I stop work. So in other words, I treat, if, if I've got some serious writing on the go, whether it's a book or an article, whatever it might be, I treat it as a full-time job. Yeah. And I regard a 1,000 words a day as an absolute minimum. Uh, and uh, that, that's, that's how I 
the only way I can ever work. I think it's due to the fact that I've spent all my life writing research reports to tight deadlines uh, and then books to, to deadlines and in particular for 25 years a weekly newspaper column to a tight deadline. So I've never had the luxury of just writing thinking oh I might get on with this sometime, oh I might finish it sometime. I've always got if there's a date in the contract, in fact my publisher once said to me no one puts their book in on time but I do. <laughs> because I've been putting research reports in on time and newspaper columns in on time. It's the only way I know how to work. And if I tried, even at this rather advanced age, if I tried to just fit the writing in around other activities, I know it would never get done. And I'd be meandering uh, instead of being focused and concentrated. Would you describe yourself as a disciplined man? Uh, yeah, well, certainly when it comes to work uh, and exercise and diet and all these things to do with um, mental and emotional and physical health. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm probably more disciplined now uh, in general than at, at some earlier, more chaotic periods of my life. But certainly as far as work is concerned, I've always been, um, well, tough on myself. I mean, I started my own business in 1971, uh, thinking this will be a great liberation. I won't be anyone's employee anymore. And of course, I quickly discovered that clients are far harder taskmasters than any employer. So from 1971 on, uh, I, I was building a business. Well, you have to be very focused and very disciplined. I think, I think, I mean, this may sound like a bad habit, I don't think I'm, I'm certainly not a workaholic. I mean, I don't just work on and on and I don't take pleasure in hiding away in work. But I think that the discipline started a long time ago when I, I started work straight out of school, age 16. Uh, and I studied as an evening student at Sydney University. Now, if you have a full-time job and then you're going to evening lectures and then coming home late, having dinner, getting up, doing it all again the next day and doing your essays and assignments and so on on the weekend, you do actually learn <laughs> to be quite disciplined. And I think in some ways those were bad habits. It took me a long time, once I'd, once I'd finished my first degree, it took me a long time to realise that I could just read a book for fun uh, or I could just mooch for a Saturday and not, not worry too much about getting anything done. So. You know, the, 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 the bad habits or good habits, depending on your point of view, were planted probably way back then in the 1950s. Uh, it sounds sort of incredible. During this long, productive life that you've had here, has there been anything that you've been frightened of along the way? And I know that might seem like an impertinent question, but I do believe that's the question that you've been asking Australia for a long time. Mm. Ah, yes, I was... I was um, uh, frightened of starting my own business. Yeah. I mean, that seemed, my parents were appalled that at the age of 33, I was giving up a very good job and uh, plunging into starting a business of my own. They thought I was nuts. Um, so I kind of caught that a bit from them and I was quite nervous. Uh, I mean, I accepted 
everything that was offered to me for years because I kept thinking this isn't going to last. <laughs> I better take what's on offer. Uh, and I was certainly frightened when my first novel was published uh, in 1995, a book called Little Lies, which no, none of our audience tonight will have read, I'm fairly confident in saying, um, because I, I, I staked a lot on, on the writing of fiction. I've always felt, from, I think, shaped again from my childhood experience as a bookworm. You know, I always had my head in a novel uh, when I was growing up. Um, I, I think I always thought that novels were real books and nonfiction was kind of work. You know, that was stuff that you studied. And when I, when I wrote my first couple of nonfiction books, Reinventing Australia and Why Don't People Listen, they were both uh, sort of expressions of my work at the time. They were like extensions of things I was writing. And so they didn't feel like real books to me. Um, but the first novel did, and I was very nervous about exposing my, my fiction uh, to the public. Uh, well, worry the public paid no attention. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about fiction, because there's so many people that actually say fiction is how we understand our life. Fiction mm. is what we use. The stories mm. that are in fiction, which are timeless, yes, is how we understand life. Can you tell our viewers a little about the question of love? Mm. Yes, this, is, um, this, this was a bold experiment for me. I, for some years, I'd been thinking about the idea of trying to... I had an idea for a story, which was to be a, a kind of forensic, really intimate examination of a marriage. But for years, I'd been playing with the idea that you could take the musical theme and variations form, which is like jazz improvisation form, state the theme and then improvise or vary, do, do the variations and then come back to the theme. I thought it must be possible to take that musical form and adapt it to the written word. So about four years ago, I started experimenting with the story I had in mind about the marriage and seeing if I could express it in that theme and variations format. And it took a lot of fiddling. It took me a few years of manipulating and revising and putting it away and then starting again. But I finally got to where I really wanted to be so that the reader will read chapter one and say, well, not much is happening there. Uh, and then they'll read chapter two and a lot more is happening, even though it's a variation on what they just read in chapter one. And they'll go all the way through to the end and they'll read pretty much the same chapter at the end as they read at the beginning. Slight variation, but very little. But I hope when they read it the second time, it will be like listening to the jazz musician replaying the theme at the end. It means so much more when you've been on that journey through all the improvisations. And the second time we read that statement of the theme, we know much, much more about what lies behind those apparently innocent exchanges between Richard, the architect, and Freya, the violinist, who, who are the married couple. Um, the other thing to be said about the novel, and, uh, and I, I pay my respects to Pan Macmillan and my publisher Ingrid Ol Olson over this, because it was they who said, well, hang on, uh, when I started to talk about writing The Inner Self, 
um, Ingrid said, well, this, the novel, which we'd been sort of playing with, is really almost like a case study. I mean, this couple are hiding from each other and they're hiding from themselves. I think we'll hold the novel. When you've finished The Inner Self, we'll bring them out together as kind of companions and think of the question of love almost as a case study of some of the themes in The Inner Self. And I'm happy to say, in the, the books are only two weeks old, but I'm happy to say already some readers are saying to me that it is like that and that actually reading the novel first and then reading The Inner Self, you get all this illumination about what's really going on between that couple. It's quite incredible thinking about, uh, you know, this married couple that you have here. And viewers, if you can imagine, uh, just, just explaining a little bit more about what Hugh was saying, each, each scene is considered so each scene is repeated and, and then it's reconsidered with a kind of a different nuance. So one time it might be Freya's point of view and it might be why the reasons why she has considered, uh, you know, whatever Richard's doing is annoying. Or it might be Richard's view on what Freya is doing and what that might possibly mean. It reminded me of that gorgeous French saying, which I can never remember the name of, Hugh, where it's... Uh, but it means the whispers on the stairs. Oh, yes. the expression. And it's that feeling that you get when you leave a room and you wish that you had said whatever it is. You wish yes. that you had remembered yes. that quote or you wish but that, that feeling that I'm sure all of us have had where we just had the words there but mm. they're left and evaporated onto the stairs. Mm. And in the case of Richard, uh, for reasons that we discover as his history is gradually revealed to us through these successive chapters, uh, he is conscious himself of how inhibited he is about saying things that he really feels deeply about Freya and about other things, but he just can't quite bring himself to say them. You know, he says, the only thing that matters about my work is that Freya likes it, but I can't tell her that. She doesn't know that I feel that. And there are a lot of us who are inhibited in those ways. And the people who most want to hear our emotional response to them or to life or our inmost thoughts, whatever it might be, are often the people that we feel inhibited uh, about saying these things to. Or, or indeed, uh, I absolutely agree with you, Hubert. I was also thinking sometimes it's the people that we love that we also speak so, so badly to. Mm. One of my friends had uh, a near car accident the other day and she said, she yelled out of the window at, at the person that nearly caused the accident. She said, oh, Christine, I yelled at him as if he was my husband. <laughs> I knew exactly what she meant. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So, in a way, it seems to me that the, uh, the question of love is also about the question of vulnerability. Mm. Absolutely. Yes, there's a, the, the second last chapter, I won't be giving away too much by saying this, I don't think, but the second last chapter uh, is called If Only, and it's a series of introspective, uh, almost meditative reflections alternating between Richard and Freya, each beginning with if only. And they're talking about, and if only I could do this, or if only he would do that, or uh, all these things. And, and what they're revealing is their very great vulnerability, 
uh, about taking the final step towards the intimacy that they both want and which in 12 years of marriage they haven't yet quite achieved. And I'm intrigued to know what will happen in another 12 years. Will they still be together? I hope so. And will they have finally found a way to be utterly open with each other? I mean, it, it's, not, it's not just Richard and Freya. I think most of us perhaps go through the experience, and this, this leads us into thinking perhaps about the inner self as well, go through the experience of, of a partner or a close friend telling us something that they have always thought uh, maybe something about us uh, that they always thought, and we find ourselves saying, why didn't you tell me that years ago? If I'd known that, you know, I would never have done this and this and this. Uh, there is this strange reticence about the final step towards the kind of intimacy that really enriches not only our relationships but ourselves because uh, what, what we're vulnerable about, of course, is the, is the fear that if the authentic me, if who I really am is on display to the person I love most or even to my circle of friends or my colleagues, will they stop liking me? Will they, will they see dark stuff inside me uh, that I, we all know is there but that I keep very well hidden? In fact, that's one of the core themes of the nonfiction. Just going back to your uh, fiction for a moment and considering the characters, Richard and Freya, and, and uh, all of their vulnerabilities and all of their shame and guilt and ambition, how do you think that characters like that would have coped, as we are coping down here in Melbourne, with a six-week lockdown where you have... Where we are all spending more time with our partners yes. than we ever have before, and in fact, where there seems very little space to hide from the different identities that we have created for ourselves. Yes, what a wonderful question. Uh, as it happens, Richard and Freya live in Sydney, but if we transplant them for a moment to <laughs> Melbourne, I think this would be the making of them. I think the fact that they had, let's say, six weeks uh, of absolutely uninterrupted forced intimacy i mean there may be a homicide but very unlikely what is much more likely is that under the pressure of being i mean there are so many conversations that are incomplete between them uh, for example a conversation about a possible um, conception uh, all of those conversations would be finally finished and if Richard was working from home, uh, he wouldn't be able to escape to the office in the way that he does. Uh, and Freya, I think, would Freya, Freya, I think, would be the prime beneficiary of uh, of them being locked up together because she would she would I think find a way to encourage to gently coax Richard into completing some of these incomplete conversations. I absolutely agree with you, although he would have to find uh, a different means of eating food, perhaps a little bit more quietly. Yes, yes, they may end up eating in separate rooms. That they... <laughs> yes. Let us turn now to your non-fiction work right here. Uh, and when I want all of you out there, all you viewers, to consider what we've just been talking about and the way that we hide behind our histories and the way that we hide behind our partners and our concept of love and what a relationship should be, 
What Hugh has done here in the inner self in his non-fiction book is he has examined all of the areas that we hide ourselves. He's named 20 areas and he's considered all of them starting through, you know, with sort of anxiety, busyness and a whole range of different elements, arrogant, ambition, um, you know, materialism. Uh, he's listed them all and uh, you will find when you read this book uh, perhaps your own sense of self and you will certainly be, certainly when I was reading it I was reflecting about the areas that I'm guilty of hiding in all of the chapters mm. but I think that that's the way it is for most people, Hugh. Mm. Don't you think that we're all hiding different parts? We've all got elements of this within our souls. Mm. Yes, I, I think it probably is true. It becomes less true as we get older. I mean, the good news about the human life cycle is that the second half of it is in almost every respect better than the first half. Yeah, yeah. The first half is often about hiding. In the, first, in the first half of our lives, we are creating a kind of identity for ourselves, which is socially constructed. I'm a I'm a son, I'm a brother, I, I become a husband or a father, I'm a social researcher, I'm a neighbour, I'm a chorister. All these roles, responsibilities that we have, a kind of style we adopt, the sort of house we live in, the way we furnish it, the kind of car we drive, all these things, external signals to other people about how we want them to see us. It's like projecting an image. And I think most of us through adolescence and early adulthood, often through to our middle years, we are constructing this social identity. But there comes a point, and sometimes it's the classic midlife crisis is what this is about. Sometimes it's a bit later than that. I, I open the book with a, a scene uh, from Emma Thompson, the British actor, uh, talking about on the eve of her 60th birthday, when it finally dawned on her that it was time to take away all the masks and ask herself, who am I really? Which she had always thought was a really boring question, but had now decided was a riveting, rather urgent question. Now, what, what intrigues me and what I've tried to bring out in, in the inner self is that when that moment arrives, what, the pandemic could be a trigger for some people, a bit more reflection, a bit more introspection about who am I really, the sense that there's something inside me that isn't captured in this social identity that I project to the world. So identity, the thing I've just been describing, is all about how we're different from each other. It's like identity politics is all about a minority group saying, hey, what about me? I'm different from everyone else. I want special attention. Uh, identity, that's what identity is about. It, it's ways of identifying the differences between you and me. What makes Chris, Chris, and what makes Hugh, Hugh, uh, as far as we can tell, is what we call our identities on the basis of gender or ethnicity or religion or politics or whatever it might be. Now, when we come to this trigger, whatever it might be, where we say, now, actually, I'm not just all those things. I'm not just a bloke. Uh, I'm not just a researcher or an author or a father. Or a, that, that's, There is some essential me and there's an authentic me which may not be fully expressed in that, in that identity that I project. So we start the inward journey. 
And the, the, really the central theme of this book is to say when we go deeply inside the self, what we find rather paradoxically is not how unique we are, but how we share a common humanity with everyone else. Identity is all about difference. The inner self is all about interconnectedness and interdependency. Uh, and what we learn when we, when we tap into our common humanity, what we learn, I mean, we always know this, but it comes, I think, at a moment of insight or personal enlightenment when it really dawns on us what it means to be human. And what it means to be human is I belong to a social species uh, in, whose members are hopeless in isolation, who need families, friendship circles, colleagues, neighbourhoods, groups, communities of all kinds to sustain us. And those groups can only work if we treat each other kindly and respectfully. In other words, when we get to the core of who we are, when we get to the deep sense that we are human, what we discover is that our core capacity is the capacity for love, the capacity for compassion and kindness and respect, because that's how this species will survive and it won't survive otherwise. Now, this is a long way of getting to the hiding places because, of course, discovering that I've been put on the earth to be a loving creature, to be by loving, by compassion, of course, I don't mean affection. I don't mean we have to like everyone. It's nothing to do with emotion. Compassion is about the discipline of saying, because I'm a human and you're a human, because we are, as the coronavirus has reminded us, an indivisible species, we'd better treat each other kindly and respectfully, even if we don't like each other much, even if we couldn't agree about anything. Uh, we are co-humans and we better act like that. Now, that's a demand. And the demand of love, the demand to be a compassionate member of this species is quite a tough demand. So it's not surprising that we look for ways of hiding from that demand. I mean, I'll... If we were in a crowded hall now or in the reading shop and everyone had some cheap wine in the cheap wine glasses, <laughs> after that speech, you, uh, I wouldn't need to be saying anything because everybody would be clapping and applauding you and thanking you. Thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. But because we're on That's Zoom, really we have this lovely silence where I can ask you another question. And actually, it's sort of a reflection again. And I go back to the French. I think it was Marcel Proust who said... Uh, uh, happiness is good for the body, but, but grief is good for the mind. And I'm interested when you talk about the sort of the launching pads of the way that we can find what it is that we've been hiding from, that sometimes it, we need a little, a little push, a little something to get us rolling down that hill. Yeah, I think, that, yeah I think that's right. And, and it is, and it can be for some people, it can be as simple as my 40th birthday or my 80th birthday. Uh, for some people, it's a bereavement or a retrenchment or a relationship breakdown or the birth of the first child. Or some, it often is something uh, that is either very emotionally significant or uh, has some kind of trauma about it. 
uh, something that's brought me up with a shock. I didn't expect to be unemployed at this stage of my life. Yeah. Or I, I, I thought our marriage was going to go on forever. How come it's ended? Or now I've been told that I have terminal cancer. I'd better think about what I want to do with however much time I've got. Those things will inevitably cause us to turn inwards. Um, but it would be a tragedy, I think, if we had to wait for a catastrophe to get us on the, on the, on the journey uh, of encountering the inner self. And, and my little book is an attempt to say, look, you don't have to wait for a catastrophe. Here's, here's what's involved. Uh, we can all do this. I really enjoyed some of the chapters. In particular, I, these, are, these are my favourite chapters within the book, Hugh. I really uh, enjoyed and learned quite a lot about your chapter on anxiety. I mean, obviously, we've all dealt with anxiety in the past. We all know someone who's anxious. We all know someone who uh, behaves a certain way because of their anxiety. And I thought that the way that you broke it down into what's realistic and what's not and what's a hiding space was quite, was quite incredible. And it seemed to link very much into your chapter for me uh, on ambition. And it was that sense of who are you ambitious for? Uh, are you ambitious for yourself? Are you anxious for yourself? Are you ambitious for other people? Are you anxious for other people? Mm. Yes, yes, that's a very nice link, Chris. They, they do belong together in that parallel way. Uh, ambition, um, I mean, it's very hard to criticise ambition. Isn't it funny? We criticise people for their lack of ambition. <laughs> we don't often criticise people for their ambition. Um, but of course, ambition is, as you say, potentially of two completely different kinds. One is a hiding place from our responsibility to be compassionate and to serve others. Uh, and that's the sort of ambition that says, I want to be prime minister, not I want to eradicate poverty or I want to reform the tax system or I want to close the gender gap or I want to eliminate homelessness. I want to be prime minister or I want to be the boss, uh, whatever the boss is. Uh, now, that's, that's ambition as a hiding place from the self. That's a person who has not confronted the absolute truth about their humanity. The ambition that says, I do want to eradicate poverty or close the gender gap, uh, but in order to do it, I might have to get elected to the parliament and I might even have to become a leader. Uh, I quote in the book a, a school teacher um, who's uh, um, ambitious, had been offered promotion, turned it down, not interested in becoming a deputy principal or a principal, just wants to be in a classroom helping kids to flourish. Now, that person was criticised for not being ambitious. Yet that was the purest form of ambition, ambition for uh, the children uh, in her care. Uh, and, and yes, the, uh, the, same, uh, uh, the same is true of anxiety. Anxiety is, I mean, I have to say just as a sort of um, qualification to all of this, not all of these places, not all of these 20 hiding places are hiding places for everyone. I mean, some people are absolutely trapped in the coils of anxiety and they need professional help to deal with it and it might be a lifelong some people are genetically anxious that's just that that is their disposition and they have to learn how to manage that but when we go through periods of anxiety the temptation often is to become totally absorbed yeah anxiety is a very self-absorbed state i'm i'm 
concern, I'm anxious, uh, and and that kind of acts as a barrier between me and people who need me. The great antidote to anxiety is compassion, to focus on the needs of someone else. And, uh, and I've quoted in the book several people who've written their own books about their experience of anxiety, and they make the point when they're drawn into needing to help someone else, their own anxieties melt away. Of course. Actually, throughout your book, you use these beautiful examples. So imagine that Hugh is taking you on a bit of a, a, a bit of a documentary, if you like, at the very beginning of each chapter, where he explains to you what he means by the notion of shame or what he means by the notion of materialism. And then he has used sort of stories of people to give an example, to back himself up. And what I want to know, Hugh, is because I know that you have spent years and years asking Australians a whole variety of different questions. Are these real stories? Are these real people in your book? These are stories yeah, all, all the stories are true, um, but most of them... Sorry? They're all real people. They're, well, they're, 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 they're all true. Uh, often they are an amalgamation of a number of different people. And they're all, of course, heavily, heavily disguised and embellished. I make no apology for the fact that I've added fictional dimensions to some of these stories, but the core of them uh, is absolutely true. And yes, they come from the thousands of people who've told me their stories over the years, but also from friends, from family. I mean, some of them are me, heavily disguised. See if you can pick Hugh. Oh, I, I, I actually reckon I have a couple of times. <laughs> I really do believe I have. Uh, what I wanted to ask is what is, it, what is it like going as a social researcher into people's houses? Are you holding the same sort of position that back in the day might have been held by a priest or might be held now by a hairdresser? Do people tell you extraordinary things about themselves? Yeah, when I reflect, I mean, I'm no longer doing it, of course. I've retired from active, hands-on research, but I spent a large, excuse me. Can I just say, have you, have you really? He says, releasing his new non-fiction book. Hmm. Well, it's, well, what I mean is I'm no longer spending most of the nights of the week in people's lounge rooms or kitchens listening to their stories. I've retired from active field work. I'm still doing a lot of research, but drawing on other people's uh, data. But yes, in all those decades uh, where the main thing I did was sit and listen to people, mostly in one-to-one -one interviews, but also often in small group discussions where I'd get groups of friends or neighbours or work colleagues, people who knew each other and were comfortable with each other, um, meeting in their natural habitat, whether it was their lounge room or a pub or a canteen at work or whatever it might be. Uh, an absolutely extraordinary privilege, Chris, to sit there and listen to people. Well, the, the, the topics, of course, varied enormously. Sometimes it was politics, sometimes it was the mass media, sometimes it was raising kids, sometimes it was re reactions to a particular television program or a commercial product. But uh, towards the end of my career, it was all really to do with social issues, uh, to listen to people telling their stories is an extraordinary privilege. I mean, I, I never really had to say much, particularly with small groups. Uh, I would say to the colleagues that I was training to do this work, just keep your mouth shut. All you have to do is start them off and then maybe 60 or 90 minutes later, 
smile and thank them and leave. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to interfere. The, the essence of my method always was that it was unstructured and non-directive, that I was just encouraging people to free associate about a topic. But imagine the thrill of having people, if you're a researcher uh, with insatiable curiosity, the thrill of having people talk to you about their lives, their attitudes, their opinions, their disappointments, their sadness. Everyone has a, sad, a sadness in their life and often it comes out when they have this rather extraordinary opportunity to spend an hour or two with someone who is only there to listen. Yeah. That's what we wish we all had, but um, often it's... Isn't it very expensive? <laughs> that time. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it was quite, quite amusing to me that often at the end of a session, people would say, particularly with the groups, which people often found very therapeutic, but even with the individual interviews sometimes, people would say, could we do this again next week? Have you got <laughs> another subject for next week? <laughs> That's I, how badly we need to be listened to. When I was reading your non-fiction book, The Inner Self, I was thinking about you sitting in people's lounge rooms and staff rooms and wondering how many people you've actually helped in your life because often... It's just saying those words out loud, isn't it? It's just saying that experience out loud for the first time. If you find the narrative to mm. be able to say, this happened to me and this is the way it makes me feel or this is what I really want out of life and this is the way it makes me feel to those that you love, then the ball is rolling down the hill already. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, any listening encounter is therapeutic for the person who's being listened to. Uh, and And... Uh, towards the end of this book, I talk about uh, ways of actually getting to uh, the inner self and dealing with our hiding places and dealing with the shadows that are cast by the bright light of our capacity for love at the centre of our being. Uh, and some people will need help in getting there. And we'll, that may be family, friends, or it may be paying someone in the form of a therapist. Now, there are millions of different shades of psychotherapy, um, but what they all have in common, of course, is that someone's job is to listen to you. Yeah, to listen unconditionally. That's the core, that's the key to the therapy. Yeah. I am being noticed, I am acknowledged, I'm being appreciated and, and accepted for who I am. The very rules of compassion, you very rules. Uh, we're running out of time, but I do want to ask, perhaps, uh, just find out a little bit more about you in some rapid-fire questions. And this is really as almost as a payback, if you like, Hugh, for all the times that you have asked people their opinions on this or to share <laughs> a story on that. And I feel like that I'm doing this on behalf of all of Australia right now. The weight on my shoulders is quite uh, heavy. Well, now I, 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 should, I should warn you that my, <laughs> my research method always depend on never asking questions. I know that you did say that silence was golden. I did hear that. I want you to know and acknowledge that I did hear that. But nevertheless, here on Zoom, okay. let's go. Rapid fire questions, morning or night? Uh, always used to be night. As I get older, it's become morning. Mm, okay. I used to work happily till 2am. Can't do it anymore. Yeah, sensible. Tea or coffee? Tea. What, uh, wine or spirits? 
as I'm no longer allowed to drink anything, uh, it's a bit irrelevant, but in the days when I could drink, it was definitely wine. Uh, couch or bed reading? Do you read on the bed or do you read on the couch? A bit of both, but m more bed than couch. Mm, me too. Beach or forest? I love them both. Uh, I live in Canberra now where there's more forest and the beach is a long way away, but I grew up with the beach and I love it. I think if I had to say I could, I had to do without one of them, I'd do without the forest. That's interesting, given where you live. Uh, happy ever after or happy now? Uh, I'm allergic to the word happy. Because <laughs> uh, I think life's meaning, life's deep satisfactions have very little to do with the fleeting euphoric feelings of happiness that we all enjoy but are by their nature uh, fleeting. Um, but I'd never say ever after. I'm very, I'm, this is a happy moment, yes, happy now. I'm pleased with that. Uh, Hugh Mackay, on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you think that you went in the rapid-fire questions? Were oh. you able to answer those questions with one yeah. word yeah. or not? Yeah, no, 10, 10 out of 10. Because <laughs> um, I introduced appropriate qualifications. It's never, it's, never, it's never black or white, Chris. I love that. I love that. So, Hugh, give me your top tips for living well. And, of course... Uh, this needs to be a short answer, but you can read a longer answer in your excellent book. Yeah, well, the short answer uh, I've actually quoted in that book as well, and it, it comes from uh, Gandhi, who said a lot of wise things, but I think one of the wisest that he said, uh, and that would be a good idea for us all to write down and stick up on a wall somewhere, is the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. I love it. I love that. Mm. You, would you say that was your favourite quote of all time? I think I would. Um, now that I've come to this very strong conviction that uh, it's, it's our common humanity that really defines us, therefore, we are being humans, we are stuck with a responsibility for our fellow humans. That's, that's, that's what being a citizen means. That's what being a neighbour means. That's what being a member of a family means. It's what enjoy having a conversation with someone means, that I'm going to be responsible for this moment. I'm going to respond to the need of the other person, whoever it is. I, I, that seems to me, I mean, it's captured in ancient wisdom like the golden rule, treating other people as we would like to be treated, etc. Um, every religious, spiritual, mystical, philosophical tradition has some version of that. Uh, so the Gandhi thing is a kind of practical extension of that. Yeah, we've nearly run out of time. I've got time for one more question and just a little finishing note for everyone. Uh, because I'm a bookseller, uh, first and foremost, I do need to ask you, what are you reading now? Ah. Well, normally I can tell you the novel that I have on, a go, on the go, but just at this moment, yeah. I'm coming to the end of a non-fiction book, which is Julian Barnes's latest, which curiously 
I purchased from Reading's Carlton in December, and I've only now got round to reading it. It's Julian Barnes' The Man in the Red Coat, which is a brilliant journey through La Belle Epoque, Paris at the turn of the century, the writers, the artists, the doctors, uh, the gossips, the scandals, the aristocrats, the dandies. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant combination of social research, uh, revealing also, of course, Julian Barnes's extraordinary knowledge of art history and of France. So I found it an absolutely riveting read. Thank you so much, you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing so much with us. I want to share with all of you out there, my viewers, uh, something that I took away from Hugh's books. Uh, quite a therapeutic moment for me to be reading both the novel and the nonfiction book during lockdown with my dear, dear family very close to me. But uh, I guess in essence, it's what Hugh has just said, but for me it was, you cannot, you cannot friends, you cannot simply live for yourself. Uh, what a pleasure it has been to be in conversation, as my friend Donato has been saying to me throughout this session, uh, with someone like Hugh, an Australian elder, someone for whom all of us can find excellent advice and wisdom. To you, Hugh, thank you. What a gift thank to spend you. some time with you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your generosity and your interest. Thank you. Oh. To you, to my friends out there, please do yourself a favour, buy these books. Uh, it will help, I promise. Good night, everyone. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.